Hi, I'm Susie Lau. I'm a fashion journalist and this is Made to Last, the first ever podcast from Mulberry, the British label known for the beautiful leather pieces it has been creating for the past 50 years. When Mulberry invited me to host a podcast about leather to showcase the goals set out in their Made to Last manifesto, I saw it as a chance to discover more about the material and answer some questions. The Mulberry Made to Last manifesto was launched a year ago as a commitment to transform the business to a regenerative and circular model with the aim of achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2035. I myself love leather and have no intention of giving it up. But what I would really like to find out is, can we love this material in a way that is responsible? In this series, I'll be talking all things leather, because that's what Mulberry's all about. I'll be hearing from everyone from leather lovers to industry insiders, as well as the people asking the difficult questions about the material, driven by environmental concerns. I'll also be asking, why do we love leather so much? How did it become so highly valued in the fashion industry? And how can it bring about positive change if we support regenerative farming practices? Episode three, it's the how, not the cow. In this episode, I'm talking about the future of leather and its implications. First up, I spoke to Rob Percival. He's head of food policy at the Soil Association and author of The Meat Paradox. I asked him about the role of cows in a regenerative farming system and the importance of making use of byproducts. I need to know what exactly is the meat paradox? You've got to explain it to me. This is a term taken from um, psychological science where, where researchers have begun to explore the, the tensions in our relationship. Um, with the animals that we consume and, and use as, as materials, as clothing. Um, broadly speaking, we're, we're empathetic. We don't like to harm animals, but if we're going to eat them and use their bodies for, for materials, then we have to harm them. And, and this tension has great, um, created a, a, a kind of deep-rooted um, schism in the human psyche, which we address with a, a complex web of narrative and, and rituals. Um, so the book explores these stories that we tell about humans and animals in diverse cultures, including in our own we're quite detached from, from where our food and where our clothing comes from. We, we do care about animal welfare. We want to see uh, sustainable production, higher welfare production, especially when it comes to, to animal farming. Um, but at the same time, the supply chains for these products are often opaque. There's uh, lots of uh, vested interests in the supply chain, you know, big, big corporate interests in the sort of industrialization of, of, of farming. Uh, and that means that, that we often don't know what's going on. And beyond that, there are certain sort of social distancing mechanisms where, where we avert our gaze and we look away from the, uh, the reality of, of, um, of what's happening on the ground in some of these less sustainable production systems and, and devise these narratives that help distract us from the truth, which is that our diets do need to change and the way we use materials needs to change. There is a sustainable mode of animal farming, but it's very different to the way that we farm today. As opposed to that industrialised farming or how most farming is done, um, what is regenerative agriculture and how does soil health come into that? Mm. So a lot of the, the farming that we see at the moment is um, the opposite of regenerative, it, it's extractive. You know, we're, we're trying to take as much as we can from the land without thinking about nature's cycles or what it means to give back. Um, and this happens in many ways. We, we have a sort of monocropping systems where we use lots of chemical inputs to produce really high-yielding high crops. 
um, but in ways that do exhaust the soil. Um, we're, we're deforesting the Amazon and various areas of the tropics in order to open up land for cattle grazing, uh, but that has enormous ecological consequences. Um, and uh, in, in animal farming in particular, for sort of pigs and chickens, we have these factory farming systems which generate lots of lots of meat, but also have really low welfare standards and, and are really a disaster for the natural world and for animals. So when you look at a regenerative system, you're looking at putting back in more than you take out. So that means you, you think about the, the life of the soil, the, the little bugs and critters that live in it, and mm. what a healthy environment for them looks like. You think about how you recycle nutrients and fertility back into the land without using synthetic or, or, or chemical inputs. And you try to create a really diverse, biodiverse agro-ecosystem. So you look at the ecosystem of the farm, and you try and farm a, a diverse range of crops and animals in ways that are in balance with nature. And animals do have an important role to play within this. But it's a very different role to the, the um, very different role to the position of animals in, in most animal farming systems today. Mm, so where does how how do you see that like, the shift in like our approach to like livestock then like you know how what would be let's say a utopian shift? Mm. Well, we have this phrase in relation to meat consumption, uh, less and better, and I think that's what we need to look at um, for for livestock across the board. Um, uh, we need to rein in the, the deforestation issue, which, which cattle are really a, a key contributing force behind um, in, in Brazil and in the tropics. And most of the, the demand that's driving that is in, is in beef. Um, the, the hides, the skins are a relatively small proportion of the, uh, the total value of each animal. But they're, they're not exactly a, a byproduct as such. There's still a big industry behind this. The, the Brazilian slaughterhouse industry is taking a billion dollars in profit each year from leather and hides. So it's, it's not insignificant. Um, but in a, in a different system, a, a system that's based on regenerative or organic principles, we would uh, free up space for land to regenerate. We'd, we'd rewild parts of the world's grazing land. In our, in our own farmland in the UK, we'd farm a, a far more diverse mixture of crops and animals where, where cattle and grazing animals have a really important role to play, but they're, they're in a, a healthy ecological niche. Uh, lots of our grassland has been overgrazed. We have too many cattle. Our waterways are being polluted by their slurry and their manures. Um, so we need to find the right balance. That question of balance is really at the heart of, of what we're, we're talking about when we talk about a sustainable farming system. Explain to me the difference between a byproduct and a co-product, because you kind of refer to it as both. Sure. So um, when, when a, a, a cow is farmed, typically it, it's for the meat, it's for the beef. But a, a cow's body can provide a whole range of other materials. Um, so the, the bones can be used um, uh, ground down for fertilizer. The, the hides and the skins can be used as, as leather and, and so on. So these are um, uh, either co-products or byproducts. But co-product, the word, implies that there's more of a market for them. It's more of a driver of, of, of the farming system. And in leather, I think it's safe to say that it is a co-product. The value of the cow typically is in the, the meat, but that we have a big global leather industry which is uh, helping shape what happens on the land so um, uh, when we're looking at a transition to a sustainable organic and regenerative farming system we have to look beyond food to, to what's going on in, in, in fashion and, and, and other industries as well. Do you see the introduction of regenerative farming happening uh, in, a, in a big way like is it, it to encourage this interest in this type of farming or is it still like a, at the kind of beginning of, of a shift in mm. mentality? Well, at the moment, regenerative is the real buzzword in, in, in farming. Um, lots of farmers are getting really excited about this, um, which is really good because it's creating a, a sort of body of momentum behind a transition toward, 
towards the sort of farming systems we need to see. Um, but there are, there are risks associated with the word as well because it's quite loosely defined and it's at risk potentially of greenwashing. What you have with um, organic is a very uh, clearly defined farming system. The standards are in law and it's inspected and certified each year. So if you're buying organic, you know really what you're buying. Um, and we've seen the growth of the organic market uh, continue apace over the past few years. So there is a growing demand for, for more sustainable produce. And regenerative is, is, is falling in behind that and creating this broader uh, shift. Um, so it is still, um, I'd say it's not the mainstream, but the mainstream is starting to catch on. And, and it's, there's a real sense of momentum behind this transition, which is good because we need to make this change this decade. We can't be doing this 20 years from now. We have to do it uh, within the next few years if we're going to um, resolve the, the climate crisis and all the ecological challenges that are facing us. It's, uh, it's a race against time. Well, <laughs> no, no, not a big ask at all. <laughs> If leather, then, I think most people think because it's a byproduct uh, or a co-product, as you put it, and in their eyes, therefore, it's a, a product of the meat industry that's already existing. What do you then say to people who say that we should just sim simply stop eating meat? Yeah, so the, the meat debate has become highly polarised in the last few years. You'll have seen this, and, and veganism is, is on the rise, and, and there's a really um, divisive debate that's played out in press. Mm. And this has generated some, some sort of overly simplistic claims as to what the real solution to all these, these challenges is. Um, on the one hand, you have um, yeah, folks who are saying, we just need to go plant-based. We need to remove all animals from our farming system, and that's how we resolve the climate crisis and, and, and so on. Um, and at the other end, actually in the, in the regenerative farming space, you have other folk saying, no, we just need cattle grazing, it's going to solve the problem. Um, there are these sort of simple silver bullet solutions that are proposed. Um, whereas actually I think the answer lies in the middle. Many of us should be eating a, a much more plant-based diet. We do need to farm fewer animals. But there is an important role for, for cattle and for grazing animals in a sustainable regenerative farming system. So it's about defining the, the, the right niche for those animals. So for, for consumers wondering if they should um, purchase leather or eat meat, I think it's really important to challenge brands to, to talk about their sustainability credentials. They need to be demonstrating that they care about animal welfare, that they're tackling the deforestation issue, that they're investing in the future, looking at you know, their supply chains this decade. Um, uh, because the consumer choice and all this is really important. We're only going to resolve these challenges if we have action from government and businesses. Um, but also as, as individuals, our choices do matter. So I, I, I say to people, challenge brands, ask them about where their leather comes from and, and if they can demonstrate that it is truly sustainable. Uh, but that is also, that kind of plays into the greenwashing narrative that, I mean, brands can spin a lot of different stories about where things come from. And I think there's still a very uh, kind of, uh, low understanding exactly how a supply chain works. Mm. Uh, I mean, not not just you know in leather goods, but like across across the board in fashion. Yeah, so I mean, leather supply chains in particular are, are really complex and, and convoluted and, and, and international. There's a lack of um, transparency often, um, which means that many British bands are exposed to, to deforestation risk in their supply chain. They can't guarantee that the leather they're selling hasn't been um, associated with deforestation. Um, but there are um, uh, sort of sustainability standards and, and certification marks, which provide a, a bit more of a robust assurance. And again, organic is, is at the center of this. Organic farming um, is, um, uh, has a really um, uh, in, 
carefully inspected supply chain so, so you know what you're getting when you um, buy organic. Mm. Um, but what we need to see is the kind of ambition that, that Marlborough's laid out for this decade, 100% of their, their leather from organic or regenerative farms by the end of the decade and a fully transparent supply chain. Um, that, that sort of uh, level of ambition is what we need to see replicated across the industry, as well as a move um, for some brands towards more uh, diverse mixtures of materials. Uh, there are plant-based leathers coming on the, the market, um, mm. not the horrible old plastic ones, but innovative Mycelium. ones. Mycelium. Exactly, yeah. which, which have their own challenges. But, um, but uh, when you look to the future, a sustainable farming system will include fewer cows. We're talking about less and better with meat and with leather. Um, so diversifying the, the material mix is part of the solution. And there are um, technological innovations coming through as well, sort of lab-grown leather, which could really mix up um, the, the industry. Um, they're a few years away probably, but, but really interesting to keep an eye on. And as head of food policy at the Soil Association, what's the one thing that we as consumers should ask ourselves about leather products? You talked about, um, you know, asking brands, but... Is there a more kind of formal certification, like as you see with food? Mm. So, I mean, le- there is leather, um, organic leather on the market, but those supply chains aren't very well developed. So there, there, there isn't a whole, a whole lot of it around. So um, uh, what, what we need to see is, is um, some of these labels coming through and becoming more um, established this decade, I think, because at the moment it is really difficult to know as a consumer. Um, but that we also need a mindset shift. This, if we're going to resolve these crises this decade, we need to be completely transforming our, our attitude towards um, clothing and materials and consumption, moving to a sort of circular economy approach where brands commit to sort of full life cycle circularity. You're, you're only using sustainable materials, you're offering repairs, you're, you're making sure that everything can be recycled back into the system. Um, and, as, and as consumers, we need to be um, uh, conscious of what we're purchasing and making sure that we're not playing into this um, sort of fast fashion paradigm, but, but are actually trying to be part of the solution to all this and that, that you can still have fun and it can still be enjoyable and there's still artistry involved in that but um but but we do need a, a fundamental shift um away from this uh, really harmful uh, mm-hmm. consumption that we that we see at the moment in in both food and fashion which is fueling these crises so i'm sorry to simplify things but how should i live my life what do i do rob <laughs> what are the answers <laughs> Um, I think be be radical. We we have a, 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 an enormous crisis on our hands in, in in the climate and nature crises, and we've only got a few years to fix it. So do everything that you can. Be radical. Get in trouble. Join the protests. Uh, buy sustainably. Eat sustainably. Think big and be brave because uh, we all have a role to play in all this. But it can be done. It's on to Jutta Hoffmans. Jutta is Managing Director at Richard Hoffmans in Germany, which puts environmental responsibility at the forefront of its operations. So Jutta, I wanted to know a bit more about your role at Hoffmans. Actually, I'm the fifth generation of this uh, company, the first woman, for sure, who is um, like uh, working as a managing director in this um, company. And as a managing director, what is my responsibility to, firstly, I would say, to have a vision and to see the past and to follow it consistently like we did together with uh, our customer and uh, 
also the most important thing, because otherwise we wouldn't sell anything, is that um, our product is really an honest product produced for the highest standards with the properties our customer uh, wants to achieve and also that the fashion, the colors and everything is um, just up to date. Can you just explain in a nutshell um, what Hoffman's is? Hoffman's is a tannery, so we do produce leather. So we are buying raw material and we finally produce out of the raw material we buy mainly from, from uh, very close origins, Germany, Switzerland and Denmark, Sweden. We there we produce the leather uh, for the customers. So obviously Hoffman's is a long-term partner of Mulberry. So as a business, how do you prioritize measuring, reducing and offsetting their own carbon emissions? In this last 10 years, we have targeted almost all of our investments to use less energy, to use less water and to lose less chemicals. So everything was like getting really like waking up, being aware of what you are using and trying to reduce that. And uh, for example, we changed very easy. We changed all of our electricity and gas needs uh, back to uh, renewable energy sources. So every energy we use is a green energy at, at the moment for 100%. So we built it uh, uh, own power generator. We just finished our old solar park, more than 6,000 square meters we have at, at the side of the tannery. And uh, yeah, that is the way what, how we learned and how we started um, this uh, wake up call, listening to what do we need to make things better. Mm. So can you talk us through the process of how a raw cowhide is treated when it arrives at your tannery? Yes, actually we buy the raw material mainly for two, maximum three suppliers close to us because we don't want to have this long ways. Then the leather comes into our warehouse. We do sort the leather uh, in selection. So for example, for the high standards, we use only the first. For the lower standards for printed leather, we need like, for example, a third selection. Then we do shape the leather to the substance the customer requests, like Mulberry has a substance about 2.2 millimeter. Other customers need it for very light Napa, maybe one millimeter. So this is a different uh, request of the customer. And then every single bulk, we call it. So like, for example, we make a bulk of 300 square meter of finished leather. We put it into our retainage after it's shaved and it gets its own recipe. So every single article has its own recipe. It um, shows, um, oh, we are adding the color the customer wants. Uh, there are a lot of physical things like water resistant, for example, trekking boots. We have uh, special light fatness. We do decide in this retainage process whether the leather is soft or firm. So you, you get all the specifics done in this drums we do in the retainage process. And that takes about, like you would say, like 12 to 14 hours. And we take it out. We give it a little rest so that everything starts to get a kind of fixation. And then we start the drying. So we, mm. before we put it, uh, we, we set it out. So we start like to first to get the first amount of water out. And then we put it on a big vacuum plate with a low temperature to dry the leather as smoothly as possible because uh, as, as no one really realized, it's a skin. So that means that even it seems to be so rough what we do, 
it's a very fine, you have to be very much aware about the quality of the grain and also the structure and the fiber of the leather. So then you have the drying. And after the drying, you have this finished department where you do nothing else than put a specific top on the leather which can go in all directions, all different kinds of high shine, matte. You can add print, metallic effects. You can do everything you want in the finish, which is really like um, giving you all kinds of ways um, to make um, different kinds of articles. Mm. But the base of a good leather is always the raw material, starts with the raw material, and then also one of the most important processes is the tannage and the retannage. You talked a bit about um, how you source the hides, like they have to come from kind of local sources. Is that like a, a matter of like quality or is it for, is that for low carbon impact? It's, it's actually um, both. I mean, it was definitely not uh, the reason why we did that 20 years ago because the raw material here, I, I would like to talk about Europe, is really one of the best raw material you can get. The quality of the grain is fantastic. This has also to do how the, the farmers are treating the animals. Um, the, 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 the substance is a Holstein steer may, uh, mainly, so this is very good. And now... Uh, now I can say like one piece of raw material we use, for example, for Murray, the weight is 45 kilograms. If we would import it from all over the world, like to just take America, Brazil, wherever you, you talk to where we're not buying from. But if we would import it from them, we could maybe get, we, we would lose 85% of the carbon dioxide because of the weight of the raw material because the raw material is 85% more expensive once it's in the raw, in the raw um, condition, you know? When it comes from the slaughterhouse, it weighs 45 kilo when, uh, per piece. When it goes to the customer, it maybe weighs five to six kilograms. So for sure, wow. it's also 85% less transport means 85% less CO2. That is a massive weight reduction. It's, like it's in a terms massive, of freight. Yes. It's a massive weight reduction. What's the best way to look after your leather product, ensure that it kind of lasts a really long time beyond the tannery? Yeah, first of all, I think you have to have a very good piece of leather, which has enough fat liquor, which is really tanned and um, finished in a very, very high quality standard. So everything what is nature leather, like hardly any finish on, needs more care because you, the grain is not so much protected. You have different kinds of leathers. You have the leathers like you see, for example, in the automotive, which is so heavy pigmented that nothing really happens to the leather. So this leather is protected by the finish, which is mm. not necessarily a very beautiful leather, but it is a functional leather. But if you, there's also very naked natural leathers, which need a lot of love and care, like it needs moisture, maybe some cream, not directly, but like I said, if you want to last it forever, like, I mean, I still have bags from my mom and uh, very old leather furniture. Sometimes it needs some fat, a little bit of um, moisture in, in any kind of direction to keep it up and then it lasts really forever. You just have to make sure that the quality of leather you buy is high and well done. Although 
Mulberry's core business is bovine leather. It has uh, began, you know, it has started to invest in alternatives. So, for example, um, Echo Nil, Echo Scotch Grain. I mean, what is your personal take on vegan leather or leather alternatives, just from an ethical standpoint? I mean, I'm a tenor, like I said, you know, and uh, if, if one word really uh, uh, makes me angry, it's vegan leather. It's something which is so wrong, it can't be worse, you know. At the end, let's start with the thing, all materials developed in any kind of directions are good. Nothing bad with vegan, uh, with with a vegan material, which means vegan leather is for nearly, I would say, 100% PU, plastic. I, mm. I, I never saw really vegan leather made out of something else. Then you have the pineapple leather, you have all kinds of leathers which have nothing to do with leather. Because the only way how they can show a leather character is to put a huge PU top layer on top of these new fibers, which to develop then is really nice. But it's not necessary that they use or misuse the word leather because they are just not leather. They're everything else except leather because leather is breathable, it's, 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 it's stretchy. Leather has so many characters what a pineapple or a piece of PU will not have. It's not that you are against uh, the obviously the availability and the options of these materials is that you don't like the misappropriation of the word leather yes, in that, that context. Yes, that is so, just, just wrong. Like I said, leather is not just a surface. Leather has a lot of properties, what you need for so many things. Like if, for example, you take a, a, a shoe made out of rubber, you're going to get sweaty feet and cold feet, whatever. And the well-done leather is uh, breathable and can avoid that leather is penetrating inside. And leather has so many properties, so much more than just a surface. And I, I mean, actually, uh, why, why should Murbury not try to use or to develop other alternatives? I mean, that's fantastic. Designers need different materials. Even uh, I think Mulberry's heritage is based on leather, and they they were very successful with that. But don't compare it. You know, it's just a different mm -hmm. thing. I, I'm not comparing a cotton to a leather, and I don't need the the word or misuse the word leather for showing something which is not leather. Just putting it in a nice light uh, mm -hmm. light. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like that whole you know vegan bacon. When people call yeah. a piece of bacon, vegan bacon. With leather, I mean, a vegan will not eat bacon and maybe a vegan will not buy a leather bag, which is totally fine. There will be always leather as long as the people drink milk and eat meat. I mean, all the dairy and the meat business are producing our leather, which is actually their waste. They are not doing anything with the leather, with the skins. They want the meat. They want the milk, whatever they want, but they don't want the leather. So they send, they send the skins to us. And it's, it's a kind of recycling, what are we doing? What else should we mm. do with that? And we make a fantastic product out of that. Thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast. 
So if leather is to be part of a healthy farming ecosystem, what does a new generation of leather lovers look like? I spoke to Emma Winder, model, vlogger and environmental activist, to get her Gen Z take on shopping today. I have here the lovely Emma Winder, model, vlogger and environmental activist, wearing incredible hat. How do you go about sourcing what you wear and how do you, what's the process of actually doing one of these videos? So usually where I source is pretty much online because it's global. It's there, my phone. It's pretty easy. It's anything that I can just scramble around and where the vision I have in my head, whether it's you know, something I've seen or something I'm just kind of inspiring on like Pinterest, I'll find something and I'll go search for it. So I'll just look for the outfit, carry on hunting for it. I won't stop. And then, and with like styling for my YouTube videos, it's very, well, depending on the video, it may be that it's like a styling video. I would kind of pick my top 10 or my top outfits and just find a nice range, narrow it down and then really accessorize it and just kind of have a vision like each like a different character for each outfit almost mm. so but again it depends on the outfit and the video what's your own kind of personal perspective on leather i think just to choose when you're finding a piece that's made of new leather just to kind of think it's necessity and whether it's wisely and respectfully made so and also finding brands that have more sustainable practices and also maybe think of some brands now are kind of tapping into having more of a transparency. Mm. So the idea of finding brands that are transparent with their processes and just kind of being more open, but also the whole idea of um, restoring. I know Marlbury are doing like a restore and renewing. Yeah, they have service. a repair service Which and they really also good. actually have an exchange. Exactly. Um, uh, well program done, where they have mulberry exchange on the website where you can buy secondhand bags which is good because obviously if you have like a bag for a while and you may be thinking i don't know if it's kind of for me and you can exchange it or maybe it's a gift or where it may be it's a really good idea that just to swap it and just making use of what we really have instead of trying to produce more using stuff we have and just making the most of it thrifting I think in my generation used to really mean like rummaging and like not knowing what you're going to find in a charity shop or a jumble sale. How has it changed um, for your generation in terms of like the platforms, like the plethora of platforms that are available now? Yeah, I think the idea of a, the charity shop thing is still there, but it's not as exciting anymore. I think it's kind of just a bit, I don't know, you don't find the good pieces. And only if you do find a good place, Everyone, if everyone finds out the address, it's going to get rinsed out pretty lively. <laughs> so I think definitely online websites like Depop, Best Air Collective, there's all these different platforms that do, you know, buy and sell. And I think because it's global, so you're able to find more of a, a wider you idea. You can cast the net exactly. wider. But then, so then what do you think about luxury brands going back to, you know, obviously Mulberry starting the exchange service, uh, luxury brands doing kind of owning that pre-love market themselves and operating it, you know, themselves and allowing customers to swap a pre-owned bag for credit. And, you know, it's almost like creating their own kind of depop or, yeah. you know, a pre-resell pre kind of system. Yeah, I think it's good. And obviously brands, more brands are going to kind of tap into that. It's going to be good because then it's going to be 
a way forward with the whole recycling and just making a whole circle with, you know, exchanging and passing along the life of a product. It's really good, I think. So Emma, you've been fabulous in your amazing outfit and hat. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you so much for joining me. And my hat says thank you too. <laughs> Made to Last is a co-production between Mulberry and Danielle Radoichin at In Talks With. The theme music and sound design is by Warren Borg at Wargie Productions. To find out more about Mulberry and its Made to Last manifesto, as well as its sustainability goals, head to mulberry.com or join the conversation online via at Mulberry England on Instagram. Until next time, I'm Susie Lau and you can find me on at Susie Bubble on IG as well. Oh,